Look forward to retirement and avoid the pitfalls. Keep listening for ways to maximize your retirement income. More than money with the Popowich Carmelli Advisory Group, CIBC Woodgundy, on News Talk 770. Lifestyle matters. It's more than money. On behalf of Rob, Gary, myself, Dave Popwich, thanks for joining us for another edition of More Than Money on 770 CHQR. We've got a pretty um, a, a pretty good lineup today. Mm-hmm. We're going to talk a little bit about, um, well, you know, we're going to talk about happiness. So there's so much in the headlines right now that is so negative, right? But, you know, Canada ranks pretty highly amongst the 150 countries that have been studied with respect to happiness. See where we fit. See where we rank, right? And where Good that reminder. Uh, yeah, that's right. And 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 where the happiest countries, the happiest people are. We're going to talk a little bit about the budget, of course, which just broke. Give you some highlights, key highlights uh, out of that budget, and some key takeaways. And then we also want to talk a little bit about, um, you know, what's happening in the markets, mm-hmm. right? And uh, with volatility comes both concern, but also opportunity, mm-hmm. right? So what can we expect? We've been through a volatile quarter to start the year. But what can we expect going forward? What should we keep our eyes peeled uh, for? As investors, we're going to talk to uh, Miles Iblock a little bit about that. Um, you're, you're, you know, you, w- when we were off air thinking about this first talk, we often talk about the markets themselves and this, the choppiness and the uncertainty around inflation and rising interest rates. Rob are clearly on people's minds, but we've had we had some interesting experiences with with people, and it, a little bit different, but same underlying um, sort of conversations. One of the things that struck me this past week in terms of conversation um, with with a couple was, is it a good time to retire right now? Mm-hmm. Given all of the uncertainty, wars in, in, in Ukraine, we've got interest rates rising, is, you know, should I delay my retirement? And, and I, I th- it's not that that's a unique question, quite frankly, but I think about it often because it, it takes me back constantly to the idea that the headlines and the emotional experience that people are having in the short term okay, um, often gets in the way or clouds the thinking around a long-term decision, right? So, you know, you and I were talking about this isn't the first crisis that we've had. It won't be the last crisis. It will not be the last. And so does making a decision about should I retire today or next year? Okay. Should that be driven by whatever the short-term uh, emotion that is being driven by whatever the headline is, right? And what's your take on that? Well, the short, the short answer is that I hope no for, for everyone involved. Right? Right. I, as you just mentioned, these two shall pass. Right. So if we're held to any event that is holding us back, then we're always going to be held back and can we never retire? Right. And I think that that's, that's what I've seen. Right. Um, people coming in very nervous and uninvested. Right. Right. And that, that was your experience, right? Yeah. So maybe they have retired, and but they've got a big chunk of cash as a result of this retirement, whatever they were doing, preparing for it. Now, how do I, is it a good time to be investing right now? Mm-hmm. And, and it, it's a little bit of the same thing. I mean, it's a different question. Um, it's a different question, but it, it comes from the same place. And, and I, I, I find it interesting, um, constantly find it interesting to, uh, to, to help watch people go through it and help people get through that, that thought process. And rationally, when you sit down and you talk uh, about this, and 
you know, if you're planning a 35-year retirement, um, well, uh, I can assure you that in that 35 years, one of the few things we can probably guarantee is there will be uncertainty at different points, <laughs> right? There will be plenty of recessions in that period, right? There is a, there's a natural economic cycle that takes place and rates will go up, rates will come down. Inflation will go up, it'll go down. Wars will come, they will go. Pandemics will come, they will go. And I think it's an important context for people when they think about that, right? Um, how you get through the short-term uncertainty, of course, is you've got to do some strategic thinking and some financial planning. Mm -hmm. right? What does retirement look like for you? Now, it, there's no doubt if we go through a pandemic period uh, and you can't travel that you know your, your um, retirement plan may change with respect to travel, mm -hmm. right? But again, you even watch that. Two years later, we're starting to get to a period where we're opening up again. People can go back to traveling, right? And so I think I think if people uh, take take out the short term emotion of of what they're feeling with respect to the uncertainty or crisis, whatever it is, and you and you sit down and you do some proper planning over the time horizon, this whole period that we call retirement, then I think you can remove yourself, or you've got the the chance, the hope that you can remove yourself from the decision making, the emotional decision making with respect to the short term. And I think the same applies. I mean, I'm curious about your conversation. When when you're talking to somebody, when is it a good time to invest? Well, the, the answer comes with a financial plan. Discipline over time. Mm -hmm. this is, uh, a plan's gonna illustrate that it's gonna last for 30 years, then you're going to need some growth in your portfolio over 30 years. So mm -hmm. to take timing out of it, which is what we're talking about. Exactly right. Then, Yes, there no, is no specific answer to that, but with a plan and a discipline, right, and, mm -hmm. and structure, then easing into the market, right. maybe not in one go, right. but averaging in. Right. Lots is, of different strategies to get in, right? Yeah. And, and that gives some reprieve to people that have maybe some, some fear going, oh, we don't want to get into the market just tomorrow, right? right? And if right. we don't have the crystal ball, then there's ways to, right, to, to factor in and, and go in over time. That's well. right. Yeah, that's exactly right. And, and I think that's, an, uh, again, an important piece, whether it's a timing decision you're trying to make on, should I put new cash in, right? When you're doing that, you're asking yourself the question, what's the purpose of the cash, mm -hmm. right? Is it for short-term liquidity purposes or is it for long-term retirement sort of pension income? What are you doing with it? You know, what, what expectations do you have of it? All of those things, when you discuss it in the context of the, the, the purpose the timeline, as you appropriately said, then you can start to get, you, you, you know, you can plan properly. And it's not just all cash does one thing, particularly in retirement, right? I mean, we're going to talk about that at, at, at the seminar at some point. Um, you know, as you move into retirement, you can't think about just one big bucket of money designed to do one thing. You actually have multiple goals that you're trying to accomplish. And so when you start to break up the strategy, right? And where you and how you invest money for certain, we call them buckets, but certain things, then I think you get a sense of, of control, of relief. You can manage risk properly. You can take advantage of opportunity. We'll talk to Miles Ziblock today about, you know, with all the uncertainty, it often presents opportunity. Where can we look for opportunity, right? So it's both profiting and protecting, but it's also structuring properly um, and having a discipline in place that can get you through the next 35 years and all of the different things we're going to face. Well, and alleviate the even the time of 
in a pause in the market, mm-hmm. dictating what the market is going to do in your retirement day to day. Yeah, I see that a lot. Yeah. Well, Rob, the I mean, fresh off the presses, right? Uh, we just got the the federal budget um, a couple of days ago uh, released. We got to try to make some sense of it. We've been parsing through it. Mm-hmm. But we've got a terrific guest to help us really understand this. Jamie Golenbeck, who's the Managing Director of Tax and Estate Planning at CIBC, joining us again. Uh, Jamie, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me back. Well, let's talk about, um, I mean, we've got 10 minutes to try to do some justice. So maybe let's start with some of just sort of the big things that you took out of here. Um, uh, and then we'll talk about maybe what some of the surprises, either because they were in it or not in this particular budget. But Give us your highlights. Well, I think really this uh, there was not a lot there for everyone, but there is a lot in there if you're a homeowner or you want to be a homeowner or you want to renovate a home for multiple generations. Like there's a lot there, including a brand new type of registered plan, the tax-free first home savings account. So you know if you're a homeowner or a prospective owner, lots of good stuff in there for you for sure. If we stick with the home ownership piece, Rob, one yeah. of the things I mean, um, what I was looking for is sort of that that retired and older crowd, what what do we got in there? And there were a couple of things in there. And I noticed the the home accessibility tax credit. I made note of the multi-generational uh, home reno tax credit. Perhaps you can speak to a little bit about what those programs are, Jamie. No, absolutely. So look, the home accessibility tax credit, that's not new, right? But that's the existing 15% it's a non-refundable federal credit. It really provides the fair to recognize the fact that if you're doing some eligible home renovations or alteration expenses for someone who's at least 65 years of age or any age if they have a disability and get the disability tax credit, um, it's recognizing a credit towards those expenses. So the budget yesterday proposes uh, to basically double the amount of the eligible credit um, to $20,000, that's up from $10,000, and that's immediately for, for 2022. So 15% of that, uh, you're take, bringing that up from $1,500 to, to $3,000, and, and the, the hope is that that increase will really uh, provide more support for significant renovation. So things like putting a bedroom or a bathroom maybe on the main level of the house for an individual that's got mobility challenges uh, accessing some of the other floors. The other one is a new one, right? The multi-generational home renovation credit, it's a brand new, it's a 15%. This is a refundable credit. So you get a refund, uh, even if you don't owe any tax. And ultimately it's on $50,000 of expenses. Uh, and again, this is for a, a qualifying renovation that creates a secondary dwelling. And that really is to permit an eligible person, which is a senior, someone who's over 65, or again, someone with a disability, disability credit of any age, to live with a relative. And a relative could be, you know, parents, grandparents, you know, children, grandchildren over the age, over the age of 18, you know, a sibling and uncles, aunts, nieces, and nephews. So again, it can be claimed by the eligible person or by the relative. And really, this is for a, a really a self-contained unit. So we're talking about a private entrance, a kitchen, um, bathroom facility, sleeping area, either newly constructed or really modified. It can't be something that already meets the definition of a secondary unit. So any expenses like labor, professional services, building materials, you know, things like that, that all qualifies. But, you know, furniture, that's obviously not going not to qualify. It's not uh, integral to the structure. And again, uh, this is available starting next year in 2023 for any work or materials bought next year in 2023. Rob, anything to go to you? Uh, uh, maybe if we get to Jamie's business, we have a lot of conversations with clients on the expected changes that are going to happen in these budgets and what people are expect and then what doesn't happen. So maybe you can mm-hmm. highlight the things that were expected that did not change in this budget. Yeah. 
Well, like, there was certainly a lot of buzz uh, in terms of uh, like what may be in there. We weren't actually expecting stuff. Like, for example, obviously the capital gains inclusion rate. Everyone was terrified that the rate was going to go from 50% to 75%. Obviously nothing in there on that. Some people worried about the principal resident exemption. Now, they didn't take away the exemption. However, they did introduce an anti-flipping tax, which is interesting. Starting next year in 2023, if you uh, sell your home, uh, you can't claim the principal residence if you own it less than 12 months. Uh, similarly, by the way, if you own a rental property, they're also going to say if it's under 12 months, not only um, can you not claim the residence exemption, of course, principal residence on a rental property, but it's not even a capital gain. It's 100% taxable income because you're in the business of flipping. So basically, uh, big changes for next year. Any uh, residential property held under 12 months will be 100% taxable as business income no principal resident exemption, and no capital gains treatment. So I think that's something that we were sort of expecting that we did see, but no other changes to capital gains rates, no changes to tax rates, and certainly no changes to the principal residence exemption. So Jamie, how would you characterize this? Were you surprised by either what was in there or wasn't what wasn't in there? They're right. You, you rightfully said there was a lot of buzz. We certainly had a lot of clients that were quite nervous about what could be. Um, did, were you surprised? Yeah, no, I wasn't surprised at all. In fact, I, I would say I predicted 80% of it. I actually wrote a column in the, in the National Post last Saturday, and I think I got eight out of the 10 items correct. <laughs> because basically, we've been reading and studying what the government's been saying for the last six months or eight months. And uh, I've really been uh, sort of looking at all that. And uh, pretty much we nailed every single topic that they were going to talk about, and they threw it in there. So uh, really, not really too many surprises for us. They have some positive stuff uh, in terms of modifications. That first home buyer's plan originally was supposed to be for people under 40. Now there's no age restriction, right? So again, a bit generous on that. We saw a bit more details on that. But really, uh, we knew about 80% of this content uh, well before, not from a leak, just from following the election promises, what the uh, liberals have been saying, and stuff they had sort of hinted at in the months before. Uh, any implication? There were some changes to for small business owners um, a little bit. And of course, we had some taxes on some of the bigger institutions, financial institutions in Canada. I think that was, at least on the financial side, uh, widely forecast, although maybe a little easier than what, uh, you know, than what people had anticipated. What, if any, implications do you see in, in those two areas? Well, again, the, the big change, very positive change for larger small businesses is uh, a relaxing of the rules around the small business deduction. So right now you can actually lose the small business rate if your capital in your business is over $10 million and it's completely gone at $15 million. Uh, they're now going to expand that range from $10 million to $50 million. So again, a lot more opportunity for larger businesses to claim that small business rate, which is certainly very, uh, very fortunate and good news for business owners. Okay, and then from a government coffers perspective, we, you know, to the extent you can comment on that, Jamie, interested in your thoughts around um, around the, I guess, the revenue that they're generating versus the spending, and uh, from a budget perspective, can you comment on that? Yeah, again, look, we're always looking for people to be, uh, you know, fiscally prudent and, and and responsible. I philosophically, you know, shouldn't really spend more than you take in. So spending is always an issue, absolutely. And again, we're going to be looking towards the government in future years to reduce the deficit and try to reduce the debt. Interest rates are still relatively low, but we could see that rate rate hike coming this week, uh, fifty basis points, and that's going to start costing more and more money uh, in terms of financing, right? In terms of the government debt. So right now, uh, you know, spending, you know, is is coming. Down, but uh, we'd like to see uh, more responsibility, more conservatism on that. And then maybe just one last comment before we let you go. Um, given that, Rob, a lot of the concern that we had 
from clients on um, maybe an additional federal income tax bracket being added, this uh, this concern around the inclusion rate. Maybe just our, your parting thoughts on on where you think that that is in the uh, in the agenda for tax for coming tax. Do we set it aside? Is it still being reviewed? What's your thought on it? Yeah, well, look, they, they, they obviously have some concerns. There was a mention in this budget about a new alternative minimum tax. They did find that some very high income people, the top 0.5%, makes income over $400,000 a year, uh, were in many cases, or at least a third of the cases, paying only uh, uh, less than a 15% rate of tax. And that's through things like capital gains, preferences, and, and Canadian dividend income. So we know it's a focus. It's something they're looking at. Um, and they said more details to follow in the fall economic statement. Okay. Well, we'll keep our eyes peeled for that. Jamie, thank you very much for breaking down uh, the document and sort of the key areas. We appreciate it. We look forward to having you back on in the not too distant future. My pleasure. Thanks, guys. Rob, markets were again volatile this week. Uh, Fed minutes, um, members of the U.S. Fed making uh, speeches. Marcus again worried about the the glide path, how Mm. aggressive uh, central banks may have to get uh, to, to start taming inflation. And so we got to Let's try to figure out what's what's going on. How did we finish up this past quarter? And what can we expect over the course of this year? Yeah, you got it, Dave. I mean, it's not it's not just that, right? It's not just rising interest rates. It's geopolitical arrest, uh, you know, issues that we're seeing yep. uh, across the ocean still. And when are those going to abate? So, Miles, maybe you can give us some indication on um, where do you see the markets headed? Well, you know, a lot. Hey, gentlemen, thanks for having me on, by the way. And, uh, you know, it's been it's been a pretty rocky start to the year, no question, in terms of financial markets. And you guys you guys hit the nail on the head. It was, you know, there's there's geopolitics, uh, war. Uh, there's there's worries about inflation globally and there's worries about central bank tightening. And I think all those have added up uh, to give us a, a rocky start to the year. But Look, I mean, uh, what is the the global equity market is is sort of down maybe five percent at this point. So it's been rocky, but it's not terrible. Um, and in fact, you know, you look at the Canadian equity market, and I think I think year to date we might be slightly up uh, four or five percent. I mean, not slightly. That's pretty good. Um, so you know, where do I see the markets going? I, I I suspect it's it's really a function of how we see the global economies evolve. Uh, we've seen pretty good growth rates in the global economies, uh, whether it's the U.S. or, or Europe or, or around the world. And, you know, as long as we, we still have that positive trajectory on, on economic activity, uh, I, I think that, that, that the markets will do OK. Now, that doesn't mean they're going to do great. And I don't think it's going to be easy for investors. Uh, I do think there will be bouts of volatility along the way. But you know, barring economic recession, uh, I think that at least on the equity side of, of the ledger, I think that markets can make uh, some further gains from here. Yeah. So, Miles, you know, as I guess as the chief um, investment strategist at Dynamic, you sort of looking at the big picture and the different asset classes. You know, when I when I look at sort of the the various uh, issues that we're facing right now, they all sort of take me back through central banks one way or another, um, and so. You know, a lot of the conversation we're having with clients is to try to contextualize. You know, there's a war over here. We've got supply chain issues. You've got commodities going through the roof, and therefore there's inflation and rising interest rates. But maybe you can give some context and help help uh, investors understand where we got to keep our eye. Where's the bouncing ball in this whole thing, and what do we really have to be cognizant of 
as we move through the balance of this year? So I think, again, you know, there is a lot of uncertainty, as you say, there, the, uh, but, but the issue when you're dealing with uh, the future, which is what investing is about, uh, is, is there's always uncertainty. I mean, you know, it wasn't too long ago that uh, there was a pandemic that hit our shores. Uh, no one was prepared for that. That's uncertain. You know, you go back in 1998 and long-term capital management dissolved, a big investment management firm in, in America, and that caused a bit of a crisis. No one expected that. There's always uncertainty is the point. I think one of the things we have to think about uh, when it comes to, uh, you know, how do we summarize all of this uncertainty? And I think it, it really boils down to ask yourself this question is, are we likely to enter an economic recession or not? Uh, all these crop and 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 the point, you know, my view is no. I don't think you know over the next nine to twelve months a recession is very likely. Uh, but um, and and in those situations, it's typically paid uh, to stay with the, the the program. And you know, let me even take take a step back from that. It's generally good to stick with your program always. Uh, you know, one of the things that we've found in the data that we've analyzed uh, about investor behavior is that, is that, you know, the average investor doesn't really generate the returns, uh, say, in their diversified portfolio uh, that you'd expect. Uh, you know, the average returns are less than all the components that make up that portfolio. And how that how did you know you ask yourself how does that even make sense and and the point being is that you know people tend when there's a lot of uncertainty and there's some volatility in markets people tend to you know buy and sell things <laughs> you know if stuff's going down I want to sell it if stuff's going up I want to buy it but you know I think the and the point is we tend to be buying when we should be selling and selling when we should be buying and I, I think sticking to the program is 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 the best sort of. Uh, road forward. But again, if you're really thinking about where volatility could come into this equation, I truly think that, you know, historically speaking, the most volatile episodes have been around uh, economic recession. And like I said, I don't think that's a very high odds outcome over the next nine to 12 months. So volatility, sure. Uh, markets are volatile. But, you know, is this cycle ending behavior? I, I, I'm not convinced it is uh, without recession. Miles, the period of volatility that we're in right now, can you kind of give us some indicators on where you're seeing specific opportunities in certain sectors? I mean, obviously, we've seen one domestically in the in the oil and gas market, mm -hmm. but maybe you can talk about some globally, too. Sure. I mean, well, that's that's uh, thinking about uh, resources proper, you know, whether it's uh, material stocks or energy stocks. I mean, I think energy stocks are up something like 30 percent this year and uh, material stocks are up a little over 20 percent. And, and remember, for Canada, that's about 30% of the weight of the of the total market. So that's that's been a big benefit for Canada. You know, I suspect given lingering concerns about supply, the supply situation, the oil and gas situation, uh, that, you know, that's going to going to be a place you can hang your hat for a while. Uh, but, you know, I also say that we're, we're into, let's call it slowdown mode uh, in terms of global economic growth. And, you know, when you're when you're thinking about how to add ballast to a portfolio in sort of a slowing economy, uh, places like, you know, almost the extreme opposite of what we're talking about here, almost the extreme opposite of the energy and the material stocks are the healthcare stocks and the consumer staple stocks. And those tend to really help if, you know, if you have exposure to energy, which is very volatile, uh, even in good times, it's very volatile. 
that sector. I think a good place to also have some money is in is in healthcare, which doesn't seem all that expensive, uh, and consumer staple stocks, where we all know that we have to, uh, you know, uh, put food in the table every day, and those those stocks tend to benefit. So uh, you want to look for some stability to sort of counteract if you're involved in those energy and material stocks. And I think those are good places to be, whether they're, you know, in Canada or the U.S. or the rest of the world. And Miles, maybe we get your thoughts and comments also on fixed income and bonds. That market has been uh, beat up a little bit as has the equity markets as this repricing of interest rates and inflation story sort of rolls out. Um, Get lots of questions from from, uh, regular investors about whether or not they should still hold bonds in the portfolio. And what does it mean as we go through this reset? And then if you could speak to the other side, once interest rates have gone up, uh, I'd be very interested to get your thoughts and comments. Yeah, so it kind of comes back to that earlier point I was talking about where, uh, you know, you can, if, you know, I, I get two groups of questions right now. One is where people are very concerned about the economy. So they're saying I should sell my stocks, okay? But then there's the other group of people who are saying, you know, you can make arguments on either side. There's the other group. People are saying, well, inflation is a problem. Interest rates are going up. I should sell my bonds. Well, you're going to sell all of it. Is that what you're telling me? Or so the point being is, is bonds have they all they, they have a place in the portfolio. And the reason is because they, you know, over. T- First of all, in a diversified portfolio, why you're diversified is because we don't know the future with certainty. All right. So today we think we know the future. And we think we know that, you know, central bank rates are going up, that inflation is high. Both of those are true, probably. Uh, but ultimately, we don't know when the bond is going to reprice and say, you know what, I, I sort of think we're at the end of this inflation cycle. So it's time to jump back. We just don't know. We're not good at timing that. So my sense here is that to have a truly diversified portfolio, I, I don't think you should ever be uh, you know, zero weighted or very low weighted bonds. I think they do add ballast to the portfolio. And, you know, uh, yeah, interest rates could go up a little bit. But at the same time, what if I'm wrong about the recession? What if I'm wrong? I mean, I, I don't have a crystal ball. And and the point is, is that will offer or that will dampen the volatility in your portfolio if we do get into economic trouble. So, you know, to me, yes, sure. We're going through a very challenging time here for bond investors. Uh, probably one of the most challenging times in my career, to be honest. Uh, it, 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 but that doesn't negate the fact that they serve a purpose in a portfolio. And that means that, you know, they help us if there is economic unexpected economic weakness ahead. Uh, they will definitely help add ballast to our portfolio. So we want, you know, a couple different horses in this race because, you know, the more horses you have that behave differently get you to that finish line. Miles, I want to thank you. Uh, in 10 minutes, I think you've done a pretty fantastic job of helping people, I think, understand some of the big issues in the global context. And you've also spoken, I think, very eloquently about structure and discipline, Rob. And I yeah. think, I think we, you know, you can't emphasize enough uh, about being very cautious about making fundamental changes to an overall strategy amongst, you know, the, the relatively short-term impacts that we're seeing, whether it's a, a war, a pandemic, uh, you know, whatever it might be particularly, you know, in a a longer term strategy. So, Miles Iblock, thank you very much. Miles is the Chief Investment Strategist, Dynamic Funds. We always appreciate you taking some time with us. Thank you for having me on, gentlemen. Rob, you know, we talk a lot about the fear and uh, anxiety around market volatility. Mm -hmm. We talk about this war uh, in Ukraine, and we're all seeing horrific images. And let's change gears a little bit. Let's talk about 
happiness. And there's a, a report that's come out recently, a World Happiness Report, looking at the different places around the world and where the happiest people are. We're going to talk about that. And to help us interpret this, John Halliwell, he's going to be joining us, a professor at the University of British Columbia. He's also one of the authors of the World Happiness Report. John, I want to welcome you to the show. Nice to be here. All right. So, happiness. Happiness. What does that mean? Yeah. And, you know, it's it's not just about where you live, um, but there are some conditions that create happiness, right? So, John, maybe you can start by giving us a little bit of an understanding of, of um, how happiness effectively is created. So what were you measuring? What were you looking at that led to the, the, the people and the communities, countries that were the happiest amongst us? Well, let's start with the measure. There are lots of different ways of digging into how happy people are. Ask their neighbors, see how, whether they're smiling, ask them how, they, how happy they were yesterday. The measure we use, because it digs deeper into life, and it's the one Aristotle proposed, is essentially to ask people to think of their life on a scale from zero to 10, how, how highly do they rank their own lives now? So these are people's own evaluations of the quality of their lives in roughly a thousand people per year in more than 150 countries. And our rankings are based not on that, I mean precisely on that, and not on uh, the various factors I can list for you that help to explain why people are happier in some places than in others. Uh, people often confuse the two and think our rankings are based on these other variables. They're not. They're, they're people's own evaluations of the quality of their lives, which then depend, we find, on about six things. Uh, adequate income, uh, healthy life expectancy, and then you get into the four social factors, which are of dominant importance together. One is, are you living in a trustworthy environment? Another is, do you feel freedom to make your key life decisions? Do you have someone to count on in times of trouble? And are you living in a place where people are generous? A lot has changed in the last year, in the last couple of years, let's yeah, say that. Absolutely. I believe this report was done in last year, June of 2020, correct? No, the uh, this report came out about two weeks ago. The we, we have had two reports, which have been COVID reports. The first one came out in March of 2021, where we had uh, full evidence from 2020, although polling was very difficult, so we weren't sure whether we were getting reasonably good numbers. And then we've had another whole year, so we have two full years of COVID uh, data on, under our belts now. We have nothing, obviously, post the Russian invasion of Ukraine, um, but we have two years of COVID. And we found that strikingly, people's life evaluations were robust and pretty maintained during that period. And uh, there were quite a few negative emotions, anxiety, fear, worry, sadness, especially in 2020. And then in 2021, there's been quite a feedback of those. On the other side of the equation, and supporting these life evaluations, that there's been a big outpouring of uh, positive acts. Uh, not so much in 2020 when people were hunkered down and, and, and more worried and more apprehensive and more fearful and not knowing whether the vaccines would be coming through or not. But in 2021, right over the world, all 10 regions of the world, there have been significant increases in the three uh, benevolence measures we use. We call it a, 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 
a pandemic of happiness, uh, a pandemic of generosity, rather, or of kindness, uh, helping of strangers, donations, and volunteering were all up, especially the helping of strangers. And merely to do that, in fact, supports your own valuation of your life because people value their life more highly when they're doing something with a purpose and uh, especially when it's helping others. John, Finland ranked number one, Canada ranked number 15 in this of the 150-ish countries. Maybe you can compare and contrast, um, you know, the differences between what, what, was, what got you to that number one spot if you're Finland and, and Canada being at 15. Well, as I say, these are depending only on what the Finns say. You then go to the Finns and say, you're the happiest. They say, no, we're not. Uh, and of course, that's part of uh, the reason that the Nordic countries, all five Nordic countries have always been in the top 10, uh, is they don't do things because it makes them happy and they're not proud of being happy. That's not the point. Happiness is not something you should be searching for. Happiness is an outcome of a life well lived. So then you say, what's going on in these Nordic countries that so ma makes them so uh, high? And of course, it's what explains what makes Canada typically higher than the United States. So in most of these measures um, of the sense the extent to which people care about each other and look after each other are higher in the Nordic countries than in Canada and higher in Canada than in the United States. We're sort of halfway between the two uh, traditionally uh, and more like the Nordic countries uh, uh, than, uh, on that continuum from the United States to the Nordic countries. We're closer to the Nordic countries, for example, than Britain is, which ends up in these measures looking closer to the United States than we are. Uh, which is strange when you think how close we are to the United States. Absolutely. And let's, let's talk age-related, Rob, because mm -hmm. there was some differences, John, in the report looking at for the young, um, the sat life satisfaction has fallen, while those over 60, it has risen. With little, uh, it has risen, according to the, the most recent report. So maybe you can speak to that. I found that an, an interesting conclusion. What's behind that? Well, I was a couple of minutes late signing on here because I was going to look at the data quite specifically for Canada on that. And um, at, in, all, in Canada, it, there's been a slight reduction from 2019, the pre-pandemic year, to 2021, the latest uh, pandemic year uh, in life status. Very small, um, but not actually higher. What has happened is that the uh, in Canada, where there's been a modest reduction in the total, uh, it's worse for the young than the old. So the gap between the young and the old has changed. But I have to take you back a moment because in age and happiness, there's a U-shape. So you start out very happy when you're young and then you go through a midlife low about the age of 50 and then rise thereafter. In which countries it rises after middle age and how much it rises after middle age it turns out depends entirely on the breadth and strength of your social connections. So in Canada, for example, the U-shape in age is quite marked because life for older people is pretty good in Canada. Um, but it's especially good for those who feel a connection with their community. So the main survey in Canada has a question, to what extent do you feel uh, you belong in your community? And where that is high, people are, have higher life evaluations. Well, think about the communities of the young and the old. And the young have lost a lot of their regular communities of contact, especially during the first year of COVID. While a lot of older people, in fact, 
actually gain contacts because they didn't end up because often, you know, with mobile families, people over 55 or 60 are often living diff different places from their children and grandchildren. And so they didn't get to see them very often anyway. But now in COVID, people are reaching out to each other, connecting with them. And in fact, they're finding they're Zooming or otherwise meeting with their lower generations more frequently than they did pre-COVID. And it shows up so that the, the extent to which people feel involved in their community has in fact risen in the older age group, and you can see why. Um, and another twist to that is that when people can't go to Machu Picchu, uh, they go out and walk on their neighborhood sidewalks. And in fact, you're finding people are knocking on other people's doors. They're making sure they had their, in the first year, their groceries and whatever. And now they know them, they're taking them more seriously. So this neighborhood connection, which we're driven back to the very local, which is where happiness is always stronger and best created, that people are now finding that uh, they're connected to their neighbors in a way they weren't before. John, that's, uh, that's fantastic. We've run out of time. We can't do justice in 10 minutes to the World Happiness Report, but it's fantastic to get your take on not just where we sit and why and how this data can be interpreted, but also amongst the generations and how it changes through time. So thank you very much for joining us today. My pleasure. We've been joined by uh, John Halliwell, who's a professor at the University of British Columbia, and he's one of the authors of the World Happiness Report. Listen, our, our job is to make sure everybody has a retirement that they're happy with, mm -hmm. right? And we're going to talk about that structure and discipline to create happiness and bulletproof your retirement at our upcoming seminar. You got it, Dave. Join us Tuesday, April 26th at 7 p.m. in person, again, at the Carriage House Inn and online. Go to morethanmoneyradio.com to register. Well, after a couple of years, it'll be very nice to get back to seeing people interacting with him in these presentations. We look forward to seeing you there. And thanks for tuning in to another edition of More Than Money on 770 CHQR. We look forward to chatting with you next week. David Popovich and Faisal Carmelli are portfolio managers and investment advisors with CIBC Woodgundy in Calgary. The views of David Popovich and Faisal Carmelli do not necessarily reflect those of CIBC World Markets, Inc. Clients are advised to seek advice regarding their particular circumstances from their personal tax and legal advisors. If you are currently a CIBC Woodgundy client, please contact your investment advisor. CIBC Woodgundy is a division of CIBC World Markets, Inc., a subsidiary of CIBC and a member of the Canadian Investor Protection Fund and Investment Industry Regulatory Organization of Canada. David Popovich and Faisal Carmelli are portfolio managers and investment advisors with CIBC Woodgundy in Calgary. The views of David Popovich and Faisal Carmelli do not necessarily reflect those of CIBC World Markets, Inc. Clients are advised to seek advice regarding their particular circumstances from their personal tax and legal advisors. If you are currently a CIBC Woodgundy client, please contact your investment advisor. CIBC Woodgundy is a division of CIBC World Markets, Inc., a subsidiary of CIBC and a member of the Canadian Investor Protection Fund and Investment Industry Regulatory Organization of Canada.